Hey everyone, welcome to the Make Better Photos and Videos podcast. I'm Ross. And I am Gordon. Good to see you, Gordon. Good to see you. Been a decent week? Has been a good week. Can't complain. Tour de France is on. All's good. Ah, there you go. You can tell a dedicated cyclist because they're watching bicycle races. Something I know nothing about. So this time, Gordon, you thought it would be good fun to talk a little bit about filters, particularly for folks who are newer to digital photography and to clear up some of the misconceptions that folks might have about filters in general. So before we get into specifics, when you were transitioning from film to digital, did you find that there was some information that maybe have been true for film but doesn't really apply anymore for digital? I believe there is. Uh, I didn't come to this uh, quickly uh, because there were a number of things about digital photography that I didn't understand. Uh, but as I have understood it more, uh, I started to realize that a lot of the filters that they were talking about and its effect on color temperature and white balance um, may not actually be all that applicable in this age of digital photography and post-processing. Well, I think that's a very reasonable uh, assessment. You know, most of our digital cameras today default to something called auto white balance. So back in the days of film, we would often use a warming filter. It used to kind of be a given for wedding photographers to use a filter called an 81A. It just popped the skin tones a little bit, but it didn't change the color of the whites. But now if we're using automatic white balance, that 81A or the 82A cooling filter, the automatic white balance is going to correct for them anyway. So there's really no value to a lot of those old correction filters in the context of digital photography unless someone is particularly advanced and is hard setting a particular white balance in the camera, which, as we know, step three feet, color temperature changes, (laughs) may not may not be the best option available. So when you were, when you were first buying, you know, lenses in the digital space, did you find that sellers were recommending filters in the store? Um, Yes, uh, but partly because of um, myself, um, I was looking for something protective because I have a tendency to scratch things and drop things and destroy things. And uh, in that context, uh, I was recommended uh, basic protective filters. Sometimes there was a question raised about getting a UV filter, but not all that often. Right, so UVs skylight 1a's wouldn't do anything bad to a digital image but they're not going to do anything beneficial either because the image is not recorded on film it's not a chemical emulsion we are not manipulating the color temperature we're really feeding data to a sensor so the sensor and 
the processing that occurs in the camera is going to deal with all those kinds of scenarios anyway. Um, particularly in the case of the UV filter, was a great idea for film. Really doesn't make a whole lot of difference for digital. Now you talked about the value proposition of the, I'm presuming clear, protective filter. Correct. And you would choose that because why? Because I felt if I was going to scratch something or crack something, the chances of, uh, it would be better to crack something that was not that expensive to replace uh, rather than the front elements of my lens. Uh, I met others, uh, pretty good photographers, who never felt it was necessary at all. And I believe you might be one of those. I, I would say I am now. Uh, I probably wasn't that way always. So my big concern with any type of filter that I put on the front of a lens, and hey, you know what, everybody can have their own opinion, and whatever works is right for you. But if I spent a couple of thousand dollars on a lens, boy, that's not hard. Uh, do I want to put a cheap piece of glass in front of it? What's gonna, what is it going to do to my image quality? You know, every time there is a a glass air glass uh, media change, you get refraction, you get internal reflections. Um, if the glass is not optical glass, you could get distortions. If the filter is not multi-coated like your lens, you're feeding your lens lesser quality light. So would you, sub would you agree then that if you're going to use a clear protective filter, it should be optically correct, and it should be at least multi-coated, not single-coated, or coated, as opposed to most of the stuff that we see in camera stores. And guys, I'm not slagging camera stores. They've got a business to do, but there's an enormous amount of junk out there. Um, I, would, I would agree with what you just said. Uh, over time, I came to the conclusion, to the very same conclusion, that, okay, I'm using a... $10, $15 filter on the front of this lens, uh, I maybe was not astute enough to notice the differences. But logically, it seemed to be that if I'm putting a, a non-good optical piece of glass in front of my images, I was probably doing something derogatory to it. Right. Well, and that factually, that's true. The bigger question, of course, is, as you say, well, can I see it? And if you can't see it, then maybe you don't care so much. And that's also fair. One of the frustrations that I have in having worked in the industry for a long time is that sellers and camera stores are paid, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Crap. Uh, and so they're high, often motivated to sell add-ons at higher margin because they're paid on margin. Or there might be something called a spiff or a, basically a promotional uh, offering that encourages some types of add-on sales. I know years ago, back when, you know, hourly rates were, let's just say well under 10 bucks an hour, <coughs> excuse me, getting a dollar for every filter you sold 
direct to your pocket was a real bonus. And, you know, in my youth, I probably sold folks filters that they didn't need because I was motivated by that compensatory effect. I can't blame people for that. But I think as photographers, we need to be aware that there are multiple motivations that exist out there. Again, I'm not trying to slag anybody. Everyone's got to make a living, but perhaps some awareness doesn't hurt us in that regard. So what do you think, Gord, would be a fair price for a clear protective filter that's optically correct and multi-coated? I have no real way of approaching that uh, answer. So... We could use our friend, the internet. We could use a search engine. Pick the one you like. I'm not going to pick Google. That's my choice. (laughs) But we're going to find that a decent protective filter that is multi-coated from a company that we know does high-quality filters, that's going to run us almost 100 bucks. Mm -hmm. And would you spend $100 to put a filter in front of a lens that cost you $600? Well, I think that right now I probably would. But when I was starting out and didn't know the difference, probably not. So you may have gone with a less expensive option. I I think so. Yeah, and I think that's what happens to lots of folks. Now, I know one of the concerns, of course, is, hey, I don't want to scratch the front element of this expensive lens that I bought. And that makes perfect sense. But I think one of the challenges is that, well, let's just say I've heard it said that a filter is going to be a lot tougher than the front element of your lens. And when you do a study using data, not opinion, what we discover is that those multi-coated lenses from Nikon and Fuji and Canon and Olympus, that multi-coating does more than just correct optical issues. It also toughens up the front end a lot. And if we were really, really concerned about that, how come we don't have front end filters for 800 millimeter lenses that cost $17,000? Because we don't. So I'm curious. Is there a real benefit? I don't think that there's a yes or no answer. But I do think it's a fair question to ask Am I going to drop a lot of money on a protective filter that I could put into something that might be more useful? Perhaps even another kind of filter. What are your thoughts? Um, What would tend to go that way? Say, yes, let's use, instead of doing this, let's use the money for something else. And I think that that's probably a reasonable decision that a person could make. But what we are not... told up front is what are the other options well that's more than fair you know certainly back in the days of film we had all these color filters and temperature correction filters and starburst filters (laughs) multi-refracting filters uh, because that's the only way you could do that stuff in film you had to Mm -hmm. do it at the time of image capture you couldn't do it you know, in the in the physical or chemical darkroom. But I'm not sure there's much that we can't do in the digital darkroom today. Maybe even we can do too much. Yes. So would you, would you be inclined to agree with that? Yes, I think so. 
So you probably wouldn't go out to get a, uh, a color correction filter. You might be more inclined to do that in whatever your digital editing program of choice would be. Yes. If it were doable. Sure. What tool do you use, your, your personal tool? Um, I use uh, Lightroom and Photoshop. Okay. <clears throat> That's probably not an uncommon answer to very fine products. Um, we will avoid completely the Adobe subscription cost conversation. Yes. Because that's a whole different rat hole that I choose not to wander down. But I would say that Lightroom gives you a massive amount of color control. Mm -hmm. And that Photoshop gives you the capability to do kind of the optical effect stuff. You know, the starburst type of things or create mirror images or any of that type of, let's call it creative impulse. So there's probably not a lot of need for those, let's call them altering filters today. Whereas in film, if you were shooting black yeah, and white. No choice. Yeah, no choice. You know, you always, if black and white, you always put a yellow filter on the lens because it improved the contrast. That was a pretty common thing to do. Whereas today, I could bring that image in, convert it to black and white, and drag a contrast slider. And I may in fact get better or more flexible results. So a lot of the stuff that we've had in the past, particularly color filters, may not be as relevant to us today. Right. Now, one of the other ones that we've talked about, we've talked about in other contexts, particularly in close-up photography, are these filters uh, that are marketed as close-up filters. Basically, the concept is you would screw it to the front of your lens and it would allow you more magnification. Right. Um, I can remember back in the 70s and the 80s where you could spend a pretty penny for one of these close-up filters. And yet, when we did the analysis, we found that while they may have provided some more magnification, they also created some distortions that were unpleasant. They changed the nature of the image. And most people weren't spending $200 on a close-up filter. They're buying a three close-up kit for $24.99. And believe me, I remember them. There's probably a kit somewhere in a box in the basement that's just like that. And they were um, horrible. So, again, we can crop in easily in our digital photography. We don't necessarily need to add a filter on the front of the lens to try to create magnification. We can use that with digital cropping. That's pretty easy. And I would say that our sensors today have more than enough resolution for people's regular, most people's use. You know, we talked about it. Most people just put stuff on Instagram or Facebook. Yep. They're not making the 20 by 30 prints. Does that make sense to you? Yep. So would you be inclined to go out and buy a close-up filter today? A close-up filter? No. No. <clears throat> I might do other things, but not a close-up filter. Okay. Okay, that's fair. Now, I know that you like to do landscape stuff. Yes. Do you ever find it challenging for long exposures? Yes, they're hard to do. And Mostly. why is that? Well, uh because uh, 
Landscapes generally tend to have uh, the illumination is not uniform across the image. So uh, either it's going to be too bright and uh, you can't use a long exposure because you'll have a blown out image or you will have some parts of the image that are adequately exposed and the rest are blown out or the other way around. So that leads us to the path of for what we call neutral density filters. And for those who may not be familiar with that terminology, it's gray at some level and it cuts light. But Gortz talked about two different kinds of neutral density filters. And the first one I think is the one that is least understood, but probably more useful. So you said, okay, I'm going to go make a landscape. Um, but a part of the image is going to be a lot brighter than another part. So if I expose for one piece, let's say the foreground, then the sky is going to blow right out. Is that a, is that a reasonable assumption I'm making? Yep. Very much so. So what kind of solution may you have seen at some point that would allow you to address that? Well, I, at some point, acquired a filter that was darker along the top or the bottom, depending on how you used it. Um, and the other section was more or less clear so okay. that you could apply the filtering effect or reduction uh, selectively across part of the image. Okay, so basically a graduated neutral density filter. A graduated filter. neutral density filter. Okay. And I can see some value to that because while we can do graduated filters in post-processing, if the data is so completely blown out, there's nothing there, you can't bring yeah. back what doesn't exist. So graduated neutral densities, well, that would seem to make a lot of sense for someone who's going to really do a lot of landscape work where part of the image is going to be a lot brighter than another part. Now, you mentioned that it didn't only have to be at the top, right? You could put it any which way you wanted. Right. So how does that filter mount to the lens? Uh, they generally, I'm not sure about all, all of them, but uh, filters either screw into the front or you have a bracket that screws into the front and the filters are held in place in a friction mount on the bracket that you have. So you can move it up and down and stop at whatever point in the image you feel like. And I think that's the most telling thing. Finding rotating neutral, graduated neutral densities has become more difficult in the last decade or so. But we do have excellent let's call them plate graduates, that fit into a holder, mounted to the front of the lens, and they come in different sizes depending upon the focal length of the lens you're using. And you can slide them up and down and choose where the graduate starts, where it stops. And we see that from brands like Haida and Lee and folks like that who specialize in these types of filters. Um, is that kind of what you're thinking of there? Uh, yes, um. But something I also found out just recently is that the filters, in fact, uh, can be of two varieties. They're, I believe they're described as either 
being hard or soft. So you have a hard line demarcating, which you have to set at the horizon. <clears throat> But if you have objects of interest on the horizon, then you are going to inadvertently filter out the object that may be interesting, whereas a soft filter may not do that. I think that's a very good point. When we talk about graduated filters, you actually have a number of different options. Most folks think about graduated neutral densities like the old Koken filters. They were in like a, a plastic material, mm -hmm. relatively inexpensive, fit into a, a holder, did a pretty nice job. But they went from dark to clear. Yes. And it was gradual. But we also have other gra other in neutral density filters that have what you call the hard ND, and that's actually what they are, where the demarcation is immediate. Yes. And there's no real transition place. They definitely require more work on the part of the photographer, but it may give you a more even reduction in exposure across a wider range than a hard cut to where there's no reduction at all. Yes. Um, and there are a number of makers out there who do that sort of thing and who make optically correct filters. Now, these are not going to be inexpensive. Good filters can't compromise your lens, so that's part right. of the deal. We already talked about that, but <coughs> go, for the, go for the good stuff, not the cheap stuff. Right. So again, you can look at a variety <coughs> of different vendors, Lee, Haida, um, Firemist. There are a number of very good ones that you could choose. So that solves one of the problems. And we've already agreed we don't need to buy a ton of them because it used to be a big deal that you would buy, oh, I need the tobacco grad or I need the cyan grad. Maybe we don't need that anymore because we can do the color adjustment in our post-processing and have more control over that. So we have to spend less money to achieve the same sort of goal because we've got better tools in different places. Right. But you also talked about it being difficult to do a long exposure in a landscape. You know, so you might want to have the water smooth out. You might want the, the clouds not to be frozen in the sky, but you might want to actually have cloud movement, what's called the scudding of the clouds, that creates a sense of motion and whatever emotional commotion you're trying to create in the image. So that means we've got to cut the light across the board. So the same reduction everywhere. Right. This is our traditional neutral density. Right. Now, interestingly, I saw you had done an exercise where you had just intentionally underexposing, right? Mm -hmm. To adjust, to try to compensate for right. that and then allow for more movement because you could run out of exposure range. Right. So when we add neutral density filters, I can recall, I'm going to date myself back in the day, we would buy neutral density minus ones, minus twos, minus threes. And of course, there are 9,000 different ways to label, label these. A neutral density that cuts one stop could have been called a minus one. It could have been called a point three. It could have been called an ND2. Mm -hmm. How nice of all the makers not to agree on standards. Has that changed? Not at all. Okay. <laughs> They okay. still do it, and it's still annoying. Uh, 
But I think it's safe to say that with the dynamic range that we have in our cameras today, a one or two stop or even a three stop neutral density isn't much use to us anymore. Correct. So where would you, providing guidance, because you've been experienced with this, where would you tell a photographer who's getting started with neutral density, where would you start? Well, uh, having done exactly what you just said, uh, my neutral my neutral density filters don't really go that far. So I would think starting at probably about five stops is probably a reasonable spot. Um, I combine it with another filter that I'm sure we'll get to at some point, but uh, which then takes me up to about a seven stop perhaps. But I, I, but I certainly think anything less than about a five-stop is probably kind of pointless. So I appreciate that perspective, and it's one that I agree with. I don't think that you need to spend a lot. You don't have to buy a, you know, a gun belt full of neutral density filters. You know, five or six-stop, ten or twelve-stop. If you're, you know, really going to go for those super long shutter speeds. Maybe a 15-stop. Again, available from a variety of different providers. Um, Lee makes the little stopper and the big stopper. Haida does a a really nice 10-stop. And these are high optical quality. Now, of course, when you're doing these longer shutter speeds, you've got to observe kind of the rules of exposure management. Use a tripod. Use a remote release. Don't touch the camera. (laughs) Don't place the tripod on the side of the highway (laughs) because the rumbling trucks are going to cause it to shake. But then we can get these really, really beautiful long exposures. And sometimes we don't necessarily know it's a long exposure, but we've been able to smooth out the water or we've been able to smooth out the sky. And then you can do whatever else you want in post-processing. So I concur that five or 10 stop you know, maybe those are the only ones you need. Now, would you go for the holder type in that case? Uh, I I think so. Um, the I guess the point I could make is, uh, I I brought my filters into the digital world from uh, shooting uh, Nikon, and I had large diameter filters you don't have to buy them in all different sizes you can get rings that will step down your holder or step up I never get the terminology right but it takes it from a large diameter to a small diameter and you just attach the adapters to whatever size lens you've got and you continue to use the same size uh, filter or And that's the real value to the clip-on holder type of system. You buy a mounting ring that fits the front of the lens that you own. And if your experience is like mine, I'm pretty sure that there are people at the manufacturers who sit in the basement and say, can we make this with a different filter size just to annoy people? (laughs) I'm pretty sure they do this. You know, because I've got lenses that are 72, 77, 82, 58. And, of course, I've got some lenses that you can't even put a filter on the front. So the only way to to use these filters is through some type of adapter or clip-on. 
the beauty of that is you just buy the ring. The ring is cheap. It's metal. Right. There's not much to it. <laughs> but it uses all the same holder, uses all the same filters. You don't have to have 52 duplicates of things. And that can be really, really effective. So that's a, that's a great suggestion on your part, I think. There is another issue with filters. Everybody knows about them, but apparently they're ingrained with something that prevents you from transporting them and something else that prevents you from using them. You get the number of photographers I know who say, oh yeah, I've got those filters. Now, if only I could remember to get them to the shooting site. I said, okay, carry on. I don't believe we have a solution to that. No. That is legal. We may have the some same. suggestions, but... Yeah, you're right. I mean, how often do we see that just in general? Oh, it'd be great. You know, here's a great way to do this. Oh, I own one of those. Cool, where is it? Not here. It's not here. <laughs> it's in a box. Why'd you buy it? We're not going to go there anymore. Yeah, it's not. No, nothing, no, nothing to be gained. Now, you started to talk about another kind of filter. The filter that I think is the most important filter that anybody buys if they shoot on planet Earth. Care to tell us what filter that is? I suspect you're going for a Polaroid, polarizing filter. Right. So light, direct light, that passes through the atmosphere becomes polarized as it reflects off water droplets and gets refracted. And as a consequence, saturation drops. We may also be photographing things that have a highly reflective surface. And we don't want that. You know, maybe you're doing a car show, right? And you've got reflections off paint. Reflections off chrome, that's something different. No, no filter's going to fix that. Mm -hmm. But reflections off a painted surface, reflections off a lake surface. Mm -hmm. Maybe you want to photograph this beautiful landscape and you don't want the lake surface to just be this sheet of white. Right. So we want to filter out the polarized light. And that's what the polarizer or polarizing filter does. It doesn't create polarization. It filters out polarized light. And this isn't a new idea. Talk to any serious fishing person, and what kind of sunglasses do they want? Polarized. <clears throat> so they can see they into can, the they water. They can see under the water. Exactly. So it's, this isn't rocket science. It is, in fact, a very basic physics principle. And how a polarizer is built is it's two-ring system. The front ring, or the back ring, depending on your perspective, screws to the lens, and the other ring rotates. It actually rotates the filter because polarized light comes from different directions. And as we turn the outer ring of the polarizer through 90 degrees, we will achieve a range from minimum filtration to maximum filtration. Um, I do see folks who've been miseducated just cranking that thing, turning it, you know, I don't know what they're waiting for. But polarized filters or fil polarizing filters only have an effective range of 90 degrees of turn. So it's very, very right. quick. You find the setting you like and you shoot. And by the way, if you change your direction, you point in a different place, 
you might have to readjust that polarizer, but right. it's nice and quick. So when you use a polarizer, what other benefits have you seen? Well, uh, the ones you've already talked about, it does cut out the reflections from the surface of a transparent reflective surface. So if the rocks at the bottom of a lake are interesting to your landscape, they are now visible um, when, you t when you take the image. Uh, they, it also increases the overall saturation or the pop of the colors, uh, particularly shooting in the fall, the colors take on a whole new vibrance that you didn't see before. And the one that everybody talks about is darkening the sky or increasing the blueness of the sky. And the point that I was referring to is that there is a loss of light in the process of doing this. So if you combine this with your not-so-extensive ND filters, you now have an extensive ND filter. Well said. Back in the days of film, uh, we used what was called a linear polarizer, and they would cut up to three stops of light. When we went to digital, we had to change our polarizers. Our old polarizers wouldn't work properly with the sensors anymore. Okay, didn't know that. And we went to a different kind of polarizer called the circular polarizer. To look at them, you can't tell the difference. The sensor, however, can tell the difference. So for digital, you want a circular polarizer. And by the way, that's what you're going to get you know, when you go to a decent camera store or you buy online from B&H or whomever, you have to work really hard now to get a linear polarizer. So I don't think anyone should be frightened of that. You're going to get one that fits your lens and put it on, you turn it, and when you get a, a look that you like, you squeeze the shutter. Now, everything you talked about, Gord, just here in the room where we're recording this, there's a canvas on the wall. Can you tell that that was shot with a polarizer? I can see a lot of blue sky, very attractive blue sky. Uh, I see fairly punchy greens, and I see the blues reflected in the lake. Um, there's maybe a bit of reflection on the lake, but I can't see things below. So no, as a matter of fact, other than saying it's, it's a nice well-illuminated, well-exposed photograph. I can't really tell whether it's got a polarizer in there or not. And that's the value proposition of a decent polarizer. It doesn't have to look affected. So the image that you folks can't see uh, is of a crater lake. And, yeah, it was shot with a polarizer on it. It brought out the colors in the leaves, took off some of that reflective surface by turning it. I can control the amount of reflection removed from the surface of the of the crater lake and also increase, to some extent, the blueness of the sky and definitely make the clouds pop out more. It's pretty easy to do. It takes no time. And the only time that a polarizer isn't going to help you is if there's no direct light. So if you're out on an overcast day, no point. Yeah, but maybe... Uh should draw attention to the fact that the uh, maximum polarization comes uh, when the light is at 90 degrees to the image. Absolutely correct. You can, you can use the, 
make a gun with your with your hand kind of rule. Point your fing, index finger at your subject. Wherever your thumb's pointing, that's the position of the light that's going to give you the maximum filtration of polarized light. Right. I'm sure that the, the concept of making a gun with your hand will offend somebody. I don't care. Well, it works. It, it, it's, uh, it's, it's true. If you, I mean, if you want to phrase it another way, you just point your finger out and let your thumb go at right angles to your finger. Yeah, and it will work. And that, that's a very effective way to choose. So we keep that in, into account. So then if you are shooting right into the source of light, or directly away from the source of light, we shouldn't expect much polarization to occur. Correct. Okay. What, what I don't know, though, does it do anything to the saturation in that particular position? Not in the line of the light. Okay. But if you're using a wide-angle lens, you know, maybe off to the side, you're going to see that effect. Create a deepening in your sunset or your sun going down, or even your sunrise photograph it's not going to impact the sun at all but if we're using a wide angle lens you know that's got a pretty decent field of view maybe 78 degrees or wider yeah then we're going to start okay. to see some effect there it's a great question i, I asked i asked the question because uh, in the fall i tend to put a pair of polarizer on and not take it off again until the sun goes down right and uh, does it work for you Maybe it's wishful thinking, but maybe not. I don't know. But uh. I don't think so. I think your approach makes a lot of sense. You're not constantly screwing the filter on and off, because what's the worst thing that happens? It you has no effect. Light. You lose a little bit of light. But at a stop and a half to two stops for a circular polarizer, that's hardly something that's going to stop us from making a nice photograph. Right. <clears throat> So one thing I do want to talk about is um, potentially a dangerous filter. Dangerous in that you're going to be unhappy. And that's the variable neutral density. Have you ever heard of these things? Uh, have heard about them. Don't have one. Good point and good plan. Variable neutral densities are basically two polarizers stacked on top of each other. So, because of how Gord's described this 90-degree rule, by rotating the rings in opposition, you can go from, you know, basically two stops of cut up to maybe up to six stops of cut. But there's a trade-off therein. One of the things I've found looking at local camera stores is that I can buy a variable neutral density for about 60 or $70. But my Caseman polarizing filter was almost 400. So if a variable neutral density is two polarizers, how can it be so cheap? I uh, think I know the answer. Think, what do you I think? think? You, I think you've got the answer down. Yeah, I mean, the, they're the, using cheap-ass polarizers. Again, when you're choosing a polarizing filter, you want one that's multi-coated. That's optical glass. That's high quality. Now, you don't have to go all out and buy a, a B plus W caseman, but a good polarizer will make all kinds of difference for you. And by the way, just as you can use neutral densities in holders, you can get very good 
plate-style polarizing filters because the holders rotate. Ah, yes. I had not thought of that. So, for example, I've got a an 11 to 24 zoom zoom lens. Can't mount a filter to it. Right. But with a frame mount, I can put a plate big plate mount filter on the front. Right. Well, that's how I do polarizing with that lens. So if you Makes think of the, the table lake image that you've seen that I shot at Yosemite, yep. that shot with that polarizing plate type filter in a holder. And to your point, there was also a five stop ND. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> because I wanted the I wanted to smooth the lake out a little right. bit, right? And get the clouds scudding. So there was some motion and something interesting, some emotional commotion in the image. So that's another benefit for the holder based systems. Now you you had mentioned that uh, with the polarizers, uh, you can adjust them and see the effect. Now, if you're shooting with a DSLR and you're looking through the viewfinder. Do you actually see the degree of polarization through the viewfinder? You do, because you're looking through the lens. Okay, you're looking at, so what, what is happening out there is what you're transmitting. Okay. Yeah, the only place that a polarizer, you're not going to see the effect, because um, you will with mirrorless with an electronic viewfinder, you will with mirrorless with an optical viewfinder, you will with a DSLR, which is always an optical viewfinder. Right. The only cameras where you won't see the effect is where you are not looking through the lens itself. So that would be rangefinder cameras, ah. like a Leica, for example. Okay. Um, or a twin lens reflex. Right. You know, where you look through one lens, lens, but the camera looked through a different lens. Uh, that's a little bit more challenging for polarization, although there are, if you shoot that kind of camera, you build the skill to use those filters there as well. Uh, but it's definitely a different approach. So we've talked about <coughs> the usefulness, right. value proposition of color corrective filters, UV filters, skylight filters, um, colored filters in general, where you may or may not choose to use a high-quality protective filter, right? personal choice, where the neutral density or graduated neutral density filter can make a huge difference to you when you're making the exposure, giving you control over the light that you could not possibly get in the digital darkroom and the value proposition of the polarizer. Now, when we talked about neutral density, we said you can do some neutral density work in the digital darkroom. Right. Can we do polarizing filters in the digital darkroom? I believe that's the one that you cannot do in Photoshop. And you'd be correct. We have to filter the polarized light at time of image capture. You can get plugins that fake out polarized mm -hmm. filters, but they're never going to give you the level of control that you get with the real thing. So for someone starting out with filters or coming back to photography and looking at filters, your neutral density filters, your polarizers, super valuable. You may choose to use a clear protective filter, that's very much a personal choice, bearing in mind that some lenses are not going to be able to accept them, particularly those with curved front elements or very large front elements, you know, like super telephotos, that sort of thing. You just may not find one available to you. Gordon, anything you think we missed this episode? 
Oh, I'm sure we have, but uh, not for somebody that's starting out. I think we've touched the basics. Awesome. Then, folks, from myself, I'm Ross. And I'm Gordon. Thanks very much for listening, and we hope to speak to you again really soon.